Be Real is brought to you by the MFA in Writing program at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Their two-year program has launched Molly Prentice, Adam Nemet, and Julie Lithcott-Hames. Come write with them. Learn more about CCA's den of poets, raconteurs, playwrights, and novelists at cca.edu slash writingmfa. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast, Be Real. My name is Chance Pfeiffer, And I'm Noah Ballard. We had other plans at some points, but this is going to be your Halloween episode. So please do enjoy it for all it's worth. Uh, today on this the genre hopping show where we take three movies at a time based on a similar theme or category or genre we're talking uh the sort of like the first big trio of john carpenter horror films i think it's fair to say we're talking about 1978's halloween 1980's the fog and 1982's the thing very minimalist with his titles john carpenter anyway should we tell the people who john carpenter is Sure, if you want to, or sure. I, I can throw in what I know from my research that I've done this week. Yeah, so uh, dubbed the Prince of Darkness by <laughs> by some, he's he's considered to be um, one of the the first like horror auteurs, um, and I guess when I say first, that might not be accurate. But coming out of Hitchcock, going into the 70s and 80s and uh, independent film and low-budget horror movies and like combinations of, of camp and violence and launching the slasher genre with Halloween. He's gotten credit for all these different things. But some of his other movies um, you might know would be Escape from New York, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, um, which is one of my favorite movies ever made. But yeah, he's a, he's a genre filmmaker who um, I think was a, underappreciated in his time in a lot of ways, but especially among like film people is kind of considered a god of weird, you know, horror and sci-fi movies. What can we add to that? Yeah, and there's been a lot of like reappraisals of him lately because of the new David Gordon Green Halloween movie remake with he's the EP on it and Jamie Lee Curtis is back and it's a whole thing. Of and the movie just turned 40. This and the original just turned 40. Yeah. So yeah, he's certainly in that, in the mix with like your George a Romero's of the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's Maybe fair. even more well known, but he's sort of, unlike like Romero, who's like the sort of like more true horror. I think Carpenter falls for me, at least a bit more on the like, exploitation side of things and coming up on today's program we have two wonderful guests returning to the show is andy crump he joined us back in january to talk nick cage and now he's here uh to unpack an essay he wrote for the hollywood reporter about what would happen if halloween 1978 came out today and then i was super happy to talk to naila Orr, who wrote a wonderful essay for the ringer about the Michael Myers and Laurie Strode archetypes, those of the the guy who won't die and the final girl and what significance they have in the long history of horror film and in the more agonizing history of 
this country that we're living through right now. So both of those interviews are coming up. Stay tuned. So we don't even have to talk that much about these movies. Right. I think that we can both be just like ratings. Go to the interviews. <laughs> Should we start with Halloween? Yeah, let's go in uh, chronological order here. Yeah. So one of the interesting things that comes out about uh, Halloween is that Carpenter was never really set on making it. He was obsessed with westerns. He really kind of wanted to do like westerns. I That's what he, what he was saying in that, those interviews. Westerns. Like, what do you? Yeah. Why? <laughs> There's nothing about his sensibility that's just like, wow, what a beautiful panning shot of this like Illinois town. It's like, no, it's just like a bunch of random close-ups. And right. Going into making Halloween, he kind of just wanted to make a movie that would get some attention. Uh, and one of the ways that it got attention was by casting Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the daughter of uh, Janet Lee from Psycho. Um, it's, her, it's her daughter, her and Tony Curtis's daughter, uh, in Jamie Lee's first first starring role um, in this 1978 film. And it gives birth to, if you didn't know, the the demonic, slow walking presence that is Michael Myers with his uh, you know mechanic suit and his white mask and uh his love of kitchen knives but yeah michael myers is he famously does not talk he no. um never really like modulates any part of his um you know aggressive he's not trying to communicate anything nope. he just is trying to murder in fact one of the great moments in the movie is uh after one of the few murders that happens in the movie he just tilts his head and looks at this body he's impaled and you're just like, what is he thinking about? Because it's one of the only moments in the movie where he appears to be considering something. Right. Otherwise, he's just moving very, very slowly, but very specifically. Right, exactly. Well, I was going to say that I think he's also like very much a, an embodiment of this sort of villain hell-bent on destroying female sexuality. Right. Which is like a big part of the movies like released in the late 70s, early 80s in this space. Mm -hmm. This whole wave of the, the notion of the, the final girl, the virginal final girl who survives while her best friends and her people who have sex do definitely do not. Um, no. Is, is crystallized in this movie. And uh, Jamie Lee playing Laurie Strode, of course, is, the, is the, the survivor, the virginal survivor who just wants to babysit the kids and... And learn her Alexander Pope or whatever she's so good at uh, yeah. in this Illinois this, school. This like, incredibly advanced honors English she's taking. Right. Which she knows even when she's not paying attention because she's trying to see if Michael Myers is looking at her. Michael? So in a long, for the time, very adventurous POV, because Steadicam had just been invented, this movie oh, yeah. opens This movie opens with um, a true first person from Michael Myers' eyes. And what you don't know at the time, or maybe you do very shortly, is that he's, he's six years old and he's watching his sister uh, hook up with this guy on Halloween. And it's just the eyes... And the, you, you know, the, the camera is his eyes and you go to the window and you go to the side window and they go upstairs to hook up and he's walking around. He goes through the back door, gets a kitchen, go, goes to the kitchen, gets a knife, walks up the stairs, murders his sister, 
goes out to the front yard and the parents are home and they're like, Michael, what did you do? And they like pull the mask off of him and he's, he's six and he has stabbed his sister. The um, two problems I have with the opening shot and people have talked about these things before mm-hmm. and I'm sure they will again, but a, how little time elapses between like them going upstairs to like, right. <laughs> get it done. And then like 45 seconds later, he's like, well, I'll call you. <laughs> it's like, Okay. Yeah. And the other one, too, is that the end, it's like, Michael, what did you do? Let's freeze. But, like, the camera moves and the trees keep blowing, but, like, we're not moving. Mm, mm-hmm. That was sort of a weird... The, the, the POV of this movie is, up front, pretty startling. Yes. Like, I think it's a really good idea and, like, 90% of the way there to an iconic, like, opening movie shot. Yeah. But there's just something, like, sort of off about it. I think it's that they're just in a hurry and like maybe are not 100% sure what's going on. The Somebody else has pointed this out, but the, the hand picking up the knife is not in focus. Um, I think right away, too, one of the things that takes me out of it that um, is that people, when they're just talking in this movie, it's not great. Um, no, so he, like, which looks, is most of this movie. Right. He looks through the window <laughs> and the boyfriend's like, well, what do you say, babe? Want to go upstairs? She's like, yeah, we can go upstairs and do whatever you want to do. And it's like, oh, why? stop, stop, attempt some level of naturalism. Um, well, that's the thing. The shot is so heavily naturalist, but like the, the violence and the sex in it are both so like exploitation film corny mm-hmm. that the it's almost like anachronistic between the opening shot and the what the movie ultimately becomes which is a pretty docu-realist horror film um i don't know about docu-realist because you do spend so much time in his like in his pov but there's so many of those moments where it's like a, a handheld camera and you see him quickly and then the camera almost like turns and it's like what and then you go back and he's gone right and you're, it's so much in Jamie Lee Curtis's like head and her space. Basically, and switching her between too. her and him for most. But of everybody the movie. talks about this shot, this opening shot in his right. POV. But like, why do? Why is the shot in his POV? Because ultimately, like, we never get even a hundred yards into his psyche ever again. Mm. Well, I mean, unless when you're walking, when you're watching people like go from house to house and stuff. But in terms of the terror of it, we're never that close to the violence on that side of it. I don't think that's true at all. You have multiple striking shots where you're, you are him watching other people. And then like the kid runs up into his arms or you find out that he's like, he walks into frame from inside the house. But I think I agree in the sense that I think those are better uses of the POV than the opening shot. Yeah. I just think the P the opening POV sets a weird tone that you're like always going to stay with this guy when in fact the movie just attempts to make him more obscure as the movie goes on. That's very fair. That's very fair. Um, so let's, let's sort of describe this movie. It's short. It's relatively spare and simple. Um, it is not especially bloody. I think it's, I think actually, I think it's an incredible exercise in like low budget horror filmmaking and like what you can do with a visual um the luck that can go into like we found this mask and it's like almost human and like that's what's so incredibly creepy and ultimately iconic about right. it it's like if you try to describe the michael myers mask it's just like it's a really like a pale guy with 
longish hair. Yeah. And then somebody's like, what's so scary about that? Isn't Freddy Krueger mask scarier than that? And you're like, no, no, because this is, <laughs> this is like something, it, it's uncanny. It's the fact that it's just a little bit like off of a human face. And there is such a cruel indifference to the way that face sets that has scared me for 20 years about Michael Myers. Sure. It's not the knives, it's that mask. Right, and there's something bare bones to it that makes it, like, it sort of makes it timeless in a way. Right. Because it is, like, such an artifact of, like, when it's from, it makes no apologies for being somewhat indie in its, like, you know, like, the, some of the shots aren't in focus and things like that. And there's, like, a pretty aggressive, like, hair coming up the frame in one of the shots when Jamie Lee Curtis is, like, moving things around. It's yeah. like... You couldn't have like rubbed that out in post. They okay. had three hundred thousand dollars to make right the exactly to make the film. But at the same time, like going back to your earlier entry point, chance like with that, and I understand that this movie was a, like a pioneer in its time. Don't think that I don't have adequate respect for where this movie falls into the genre of horror films. That being said, the first three quarters of this movie is like. Yes, there's a lot of building dread that ultimately leads to a pretty compelling climax, but there's a lot of people like on the phone talking about like, <laughs> oh, why are we going to, we're going to take his car? Why do we have to, why have to babysit? And oh, yeah. and it's like, it's stuff like that for a long time. I understand there's like these weird and like uncanny shots when Michael Myers pops out and they're like, what? And then it flips back to him and he's gone and... But and it, it allows that doubt to linger in. I think that's with these kinds of movies, you need to have that moment where the, one character attempts to explain it to another character and they sound so ridiculous that they back off from what they know to be demonstrably true that like a killer is chasing them. Mm -hmm. And it happens like several times in this where like the boy's like the boogeyman. It's like, what does he look like? And that goes back to your point, Chance, because it's so hard to talk about him. It's like, it's just a guy. He's a man ish he's the he's the shape he's the shape yes which is what they called him during production they never called talked to him about michael myers they just said and that's what he is he's he's a friend even that even i think the choice of the mechanic suit is so interesting because it just has this way of sort of like drabbing down but also sizing up just the average man it's you're just that's just a, a blue collar nightmare of a male physique where you can't even see the limbs really moving it's like the kind of thing that like holds your body like still but like i don't know if that's intentional or if that's just a you spend the the thing is the movie or go ahead you're gonna make you're gonna make a point about why you don't like this movie oh i i just think that a lot of it is bogged down with building that tension and right. there should be like everyone really admires this movie for like not giving Michael Myers a reason to mm -hmm. do what he's doing. Like he has purpose, but what is his purpose? And then I guess you can sort of throw your own things at the screen and see what sticks in understanding like what he's up to. But I also think that's kind of lazy. Mm. I mean, I understand this is low budget. And they were just trying to get it done. It was like a resume building thing. But the fact that this movie is regarded as a classic is sort of interesting considering it breaks all the rules when you're developing a character who's believable, which is to give them like a set of desires and needs that, you know, stand to get them something in the end. But like, what's Michael Myers after? 
But doesn't that make that doesn't make him scarier to you that he he wants nothing he is no one? That's the thing too. Like sure, theoretically, this movie is scary. The idea that there could be such a presence in the world that is just hell bent on just killing everything in its path. But that doesn't mean that the filmmaking is very scary. And I don't think there are that many. Like, sure, he, like, pops in and there's, like, the closet thing. And they're, like, you know, there's a good, like, sort of use of power when they're on the stairs at the end. Mm -hmm. But in terms of actually, like, being, like, like, jumping. Like, I just watched um, Friday the 13th with my roommate uh, with dinner this evening. And, like, we – that movie is from, like, the 1980, which is only a couple years after this. And we jumped at the last two minutes. Which is totally fucking insane. Don't you feel like a jump scare is like empty calories though, compared to the, like the more classical approach? One of the things I love about this movie is I think I think it makes incredible use of my two favorite horror shots, which are is that what I think it was, and stop making me look at this. And there's such a really interesting like imbalance between the two where they actually link up perfectly of. You know, there he was in the bu- in the bushes, and now he's gone. There he was in the laundry line, and now he's gone. And then compared to the thing of you just having to stare at Laurie Strode and having to stare at kids, and the- you're wondering, like, am I him again? Am I him again? And then all of a sudden his shoulder is in the shot, and you're like, fuck, I was him. This is terrible. Um, and I feel like that's such a more earned way to make the movie than, blah! I don't know what I see of her life. What I see of everyone's life is so slight. Right. No, I agree with that. I that th- it's, I just like, don't, I don't know. I don't care that much. This sounds like almost callous to say, but I think people have overstated, um, how iconic Laurie Strode might be and how good Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie. She is very good at being a human at the end. And one of the most important edits in the movie is when you cut to the land, the yard and he's not there rather than being like, Ooh, he's gone. You cut back to her and she is weeping. Her childhood is over. And like, she's yeah. very good in that moment. And it's a very smart cut where the movie's not too exploitative, but her just walking around being like, what stories do you like? Um, are you coming over? You're right. Are like people ignore how like poorly done or just like slightly below league average. A lot of the dialogue and acting is in this movie. Certainly. And which is not to say that Jamie Lee Curtis is not a wildly talented actor. You can she, actually see her get better in the fog two years later. She's a little, cause she has a character. Right. Whereas in this one, she's just like girl and suburban girl, pretty- suburban virgin. And you could hear in the Halloween Unmasked podcast, like that's kind of what they wanted. They wanted to sell the movie by being like, we've got Janet Lee's daughter um, and there's got to be a babysitter in it. Like that's about as much thought as was given to the part. But in that, when you're watching a movie here 40 years later, that shows that lack of ambition in the story behind this. So what you have is an interesting artifact, I think, of how better horror movies like got permission to be that way but ultimately i think this movie's kind of boring well since we're tossing around the b word we'd we'd better get our rating system explainer in here for the uninitiated here's how we rate movies on this show ultimately there is no ambiguity on be real all movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings good good bad bad good bad and bad good 
The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or Awards Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul, leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I'm gonna give it a good bad. I'm gonna give it- I have a, I have a take. There's been so much Halloween um, thinking and canonizing and recanonizing. I have a take about this movie um, and what I think is so brilliant about it. Um, there's not, this is a spare movie. At no point in this movie in like a poltergeisty way is John Carpenter like, the suburbs are an American curse. Like that's not, that's not in here. There's like a line about how the houses are lined up in little rows for the slaughter, but that's about it. And I think what's so incredible about this movie and John Carpenter is such a good director of space is the feeling of almost malicious helplessness that the characters go through the scary one of the scariest parts of the movie for me is when she escapes him the first time runs across the street back to the house and the houses are so far apart you've seen that steady shot of how far away that house is five six times you see him carrying the body you see him just standing there you see him not there and there's this feeling not only of helplessness like you would be if you were in the middle of the country but like helpless when you shouldn't be a different kind of fear than being totally isolated it's the betrayal that people like could help you but they won't and there's like this there's this very nasty feeling almost as nasty as michael myers himself that like do we organize our lives this way do we organize our cities this way do we put this much distance between ourselves because we hate each other because we don't want to help and i feel like that's the weird thing that this movie captures is just the like you know, she can scream and scream, porch lights on, porch lights off, but he will walk at that slasher villain's pace and he'll still catch her because, like, there's nobody in this town that's going to help. Um, and that's the horror for me. I think it's the horror of the helplessness and this just intruder taking advantage of it. 
I totally agree with you. And I think where the film gets boring for me, really, what I'm talking about is the bigger sort of like Donald Pleasance and the cop kind of like, what does evil mean? How do we police <laughs> evil? And like, it has those bigger That's ambitions. If right. the movie had not included that side of it at all, like sure. Then I it will might be buy even into more what artistic. Yeah, exactly. I think it doesn't, it, it's not spare enough to be truly scary because it's like, I know there's gonna they're gonna catch him or something because of just them showing us the infrastructure. Yeah, of those this interactions world. are truly ridiculous. Where the cops like, "Have you seen him?" and Donald Pleasance is like, "Seen him? He's evil." And the cops like, "I'm asking you a simple question." Yeah, I my favorite scene in the movie though is the one where the kids go up to the old Myers house. Yeah, and Donald Pleasance from the bushes is like. Fuck off, kids, or I'll come get you. <laughs> and then he, the, the, it cuts to him, and he's proud of himself for like scaring the shit out of these kids. Right. And then like the sheriff comes, and he's like the the shit is scared out of him. Yeah, it's pretty good. But other well, than that, spend a little more time pretty... looking for Michael Myers, <laughs> Doctor Loomis. Right. Um, yeah, I think this movie's. Uh, I I note the flaws. I don't think it's like it doesn't hold up brilliantly brilliantly on rewatch but like i still think it's like really good and i super appreciated it and for a movie that's that much about wide open um vulnerable space for them to end it in a closet the size of a fucking shoebox is like you can build your houses this far apart you can put as much distance between you and other people as you want but you're still gonna end up on the closet floor when evil comes to get you i think i think it is a visually poetic and wonderful horror movie so good good for me okay Let's get to our expert guests. They are terrific. We're going to start with Naila Orr, uh, who wears many hats. She is a columnist for Baffler, a writer-in-residence of the Black Mountain Institute. She's a contributing editor to the Organist podcast on KCRW, and she's the interviews editor for Believer magazine. The reason she's on today's show is she wrote a wonderful piece for The Ringer um, about the proverbial guy that won't die in horror movies. Um, And in a lot of ways, Michael Myers is the origination point for that archetype. So Naila traced this history through film in her piece while also connecting it super deftly um, to the the man who will stop at nothing to to get what he wants to traumatize and all the ways we see that happening in real life um i really want to thank naila for the conversation uh, but i also need to apologize out front i am the amateur of all amateurs and i lost the first 90 seconds of this interview um and to make matters worse she's answering my first question which was how did you come up with this piece uh with a really personal experience um about this pattern of harassment from this person she knew that unfolded over so many years um, and how while going through this, uh, she connected it to horror films that she'd seen. So I'm sorry that I have to be the person to relay that part of the story. I really didn't want to make her repeat it um, as she was saying it, Uh, but that's what she's talking about when we start now. So all apologies for my flub. Um, She's so wonderful and uh, enjoy the interview. And the only thing I could think about um, was this film, When a Stranger Calls Back. It's like the most frightening film I've ever seen, um, in part because there's no rhyme or reason to this person's madness. Um, he targets, the, in the, A Stranger Calls Back, there's this like manic, uh, psychopathic ventriloquist who um, 
assaults a young woman who is a babysitter. And he shows up to her house, uh, to the house that she's, um, she's to her client's house and she's, she's watching these two children. He shows up to her house and he basically tells her he needs her help. He needs to talk with her. Uh, he needs to use the phone because he's having car trouble. And he just tends to, over the course of 20 minute sequence, right? This iconic, like 20 minute sequence, um, that kind of unfolds in real time where he's, talking with her and trying to get himself into her house and she's resisting and becoming increasingly alarmed by his behavior um, to the point where at the end of that sequence, um, he, he asked her if she has checked on the children and she goes up to see the kids and like you have that quintessential sequence or the quintessential imagery of the billowing uh, curtain in the wind and the beds empty of children and, you know, this frightened, obviously, this complete descent into chaos. Um, and so I, that movie was just really, really frightening to me as I was, as I was growing up. I, I saw it on, like, cable, and it just was, like, at some points in my life, like, a really bad B-movie. Um, and it still kind of is, but just the, 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 the fear that this woman um, felt was just really palpable to me. And it was the only thing I could think about as I was enduring this whole encounter with this person. Um, I just thought like, well, well, why is this happening to me? Um, what did I do? Did, did I, did I send this person the wrong messages? Um, and it occurred to me that, and so in, sorry, I'm jumping around, but in a, when a stranger calls back, this woman, uh, tries to, after this thing happens with where the kids are kidnapped, she tries to go on living her life she goes, he enrolls in college, but she still is sort of tormented by what happened. And so I guess five years after the events um, and the opening sequence, she starts getting the sense that things are happening again, that she's being targeted by this person. And um, and so, yeah, so I guess the thing that occurred to me was that even after five years, even after, there, after a period where she felt like she was safe, she was still, you know... Um, tormented by this person, still targeted, still attacked by this guy. And I thought about my own situation in the context of that film. And so um, at the same time that that was happening, the Kavanaugh hearings were um, unfolding. And um, and then there were also these like news memos of folks like Louis C.K. trying to come back, uh, trying to tour in various comedy clubs around the country. Um, there was some mention of Charlie Rose trying to get a television show. Um, and so, yeah, I just thought about the ways in which these men are like, not really, uh, they're coming back. They're coming back really early. They don't seem to be learning a lot. They don't seem to be atoning for their actions. They don't seem to be doing any restorative justice. Um, and so it was a, uh, a mix of things that was happening. It was my personal situation. It was the Kavanaugh hearings and it was like these, um, predators that were coming back into, uh, prominence that sort of spurred the essay for me. That's really heavy and terrible, and I'm sorry. Um, thank you for thanks for sharing. Um, I I want to so then let me ask you this, Naila. The, one of the things I love about your your piece that's so that makes it such an incredible piece of uh, arts criticism. One of my favorite I've read this year is that is that you are really measured. Like the breadth and depth of like how you're looking at these films is is tremendous. Like I, there's there's no like cheap part of the column at all where you're like Michael Myers equals Brett Kavanaugh, but that's definitely like in the wind of the mm -hmm. whole essay and you kind of come to the end. Um, so this might be a nerdy writerly question, but, but as you were writing it, um, how, how much did you want to tease out those like explicit connections or did you kind of just want to let them hang there and trust your audience? 
That's a great question. Um, I definitely opted in a, a conjunction with my editor, the lovely Amanda Dobbins at The Ringer. Um, yeah, we, she's great. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, I wanted to be extremely respectful and sensitive to the real life harrowing experiences that women and men have um, who are assaulted, who are, um, you know, raped or, or harassed in some way. And so I didn't want to discount their experience or, or delegitimize their real experience by um, too heavily, you know, conjoining the real life and the fiction. So let's talk a little bit more about um, Halloween. I have to say that I hadn't thought a lot about Michael Myers, the character, of course, the the, the sociopath that people know from Halloween, um, or I don't know if he's a sociopath, but the, the villain, the force of pure evil. Um, I've never thought of him much as wanting anything which when i when i thought about it when i read your piece that's not true because the ends show what he wants but he's so blank about his terrible goals and there's there he never shows any sense of catharsis i'm wondering as a character in a, in a movie sense do you feel like that the complete lack of enjoyment or rationality behind his animosity um does that make his his like evil more ambiguous or less ambiguous? I really couldn't decide. I was curious what you thought. His implacability and the, the, the lack of logic or the lack of any real reason to me is always more frightening, right? Because at least if uh, there was some, like with, with uh, uh, I, I know what you did last summer, right? They, they ran over the guy, you know? That was a palpable reason f- for his rage, right? But with Michael Myers, there's not that same kind of cause and effect happening. Um, and so that was always more frightening, you know, uh, the, the villain from when a stranger calls, when a stranger calls back, right. Especially in the sequel, when a stranger calls back, there's no real rhyme or reason given for his, for his, um, terror. And I guess, you know, I, I, I try not to, you know, overemphasize the connections between real life and, 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 and horror films. But to me, that aspect of the films, um, the, the complete lack of emotion or anything, um, mirrors kind of some, you know, the kind of dynamics that you might find in real life, right? Where sometimes victims or, or survivors don't really know and maybe don't even care what the reason was. They are just yeah. completely immersed in their own experience, you know? And I think that that's sometimes the more interesting place to go. And probably shouldn't have to be subjected to whatever the twisted reasons are anyway. Right, right. Um, I want to keep talking about who we identify with when we watch these movies, because y- you you pointed out in in the camera work for the original Halloween, the complicity of the POV is a is a big deal in that movie. Um, mm-hmm. You spend probably ten fifteen minutes in the build up to the violence, looking through his eyes and mm-hmm. the camera standing in for his eyes. Um, and I mean, I'm I'm no great paragon of morality but when i was watching it recently i was like please stop i don't want to look through his eyes anymore but i don't know if everyone feels that way ironically i heard um and i don't think he meant anything terrible by it but uh bill simmons who's the ringer is his company was taught he's a big halloween fan and -hmm. was talking about like i kind of weirdly root for like michael myers is the reason this franchise continues like i like michael myers um what do you do you think there are battle lines or are hmm. or just like different ways of identifying when we're kind of forced to look through his eyes like that? Well, that's a great question. And I think uh, what you were just relating about Bill, I think he his reaction speaks to, I think, the intention 
um, speaks to maybe a desired response, maybe uh, that the film was trying to maybe not invoke, but but um, point to. Yeah, it's there. That's one way to do it, right? Certainly, it, it points to the ways in which when we're engaging with certain types of films, certain types of media, we're made to identify with a you know pretty overtly male gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's kind of ambiguous as to whether or not the 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 film is is encouraging that that look and encouraging that gaze, encouraging that perspective, encouraging us to identify with him, right? Because it certainly happens. But in some other, in another way, it's also a critique of that, right? Of of, of films, and um, I think that's one of the, the most interesting thing about the slasher genre is that it sort of highlights the ways in which um, women and men um, are, are re- relate to each other in film, in the space of the film, in the mise en scene uh, of the film. I think it's it's made to be pretty ambiguous, you know. And I think with I mentioned the film Blowout, uh, Brian De Palma. De Palma Blowout, yeah. He's always been critiqued um, with regard to how he treats women in his films, right? And so I think with Blowout, it was just such a smart way to critique uh, to critique the slasher genre, to critique the um, components of of the genre and the ways in which men are complicit. Um, or can be complicit in the abuse and the ongoing abuse of women. There's a, like a nexus of, of various forms of power that you see in the film, right? So you see the government um, uh, standing on the neck of the protagonist, um, Jack Terry, um, played by John Travolta. You you also have men sort of uh, uh, antagonizing Sally, you know, the main character of that film. And you have a photographer, right, who is sort of just, just nasty and grabby and just, just feels an ent- entitlement to her body in more ways than one as a photographer, but also as a man. Um, uh, and so I don't know, it's just, just very smart and, and also ambiguous, you know, um, and we get to see the male, a male character who is both uh, trying to make a difference, but also complicit in the terror of women characters. And so, uh, I guess I'm going on a tangent here, but I think um, that some of that identification is, is certainly ambiguous. And um, I think it's up to us, right, to kind of complete the film, right? Yeah. And I, I feel like, I mean, and the first Halloween, most people, I think, consider is smarter than the 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 things that follow. Maybe in a visual, mm-hmm. in a cinematic sense, um, if not like a plot sense, it's not particularly clever or, or busy or anything like that um do we should we be troubled <laughs> at all i mean you you quoted um uh carol clover who who wrote about the the recurring psychopath as quote the the institutionalization of terror personified in terms mm-hmm. of where and how people identify is it a weirdly is it troubling that people identified enough to make 11 halloween movies and 10 Jason movies and eight Freddy movies where those, where those monsters are, have essentially become the, the IP prize. Absolutely. I definitely think it's troubling to continue to fetishize a particular kind of violence that's enacted against women. Um, and I, but I also think the world is troubling, right? And it's, it's just, it's a frightening place to be, you know, not saying that as if you don't know, but just, thinking about the ways in which real life is the ultimate terror, right? Um, And so 
I definitely think that the reason why there have been so many sequels um, and spinoffs of these films is because, you know, they tend to make a lot of money. And so the the primary motivation for these filmmakers and producers and, you know, um, gay Hollywood gatekeepers is the financial aspect, right? There's not a, Hollywood isn't sort of operated by morality, right? It's not motored by um, um, ethics, right? Um, but I do think there's an unintentional way in which um, these films highlight some of the real societal issues that we have, you know, um, the first Halloween was, I guess, was re- written and released in the wake of, um, uh, the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. And so a scholar that I quote in my piece talked a lot about how the slasher genres, um, main, uh, or, uh, I guess peak sort of coincided with the reintegration of, uh, Vietnam war vets. Right. And so right at the point in time in which, um, our society was dealing with this crisis of masculinity and this, this conundrum of how to reintegrate these, um, Vietnam vets. And so that crisis of masculinity, you know, obviously plays out in these films. And so I think if we're not willing to have a great big old public conversation about it or to, to, to try to be more, um, I guess, thoughtful and accountable to, to veterans, right. To, to what happens to veterans and to what happens to women, what happened to women during wars, right. If we're not willing to have those conversations, I think at least we have films that we can use as conversation starters or conversation pieces. Right. Um, and so I think that there's a kind of complicated, uh, 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 a complicated, uh, ways way in which uh, these films reverberate. In some ways, they c- continue to perpetuate the ways in which women are um, fetishized, and um, you know. Uh, and then on the other hand, they provide an opportunity to talk about the real life subjugation and oppression that's happening, um, and the real life violence that women face. I, I know for sure that um, the "When a Stranger Calls" series was definitely um, sort of engaging with the real life implications of, of, you know, violence. They definitely incorporated some of the real life, what I call the safety nets of, of, uh, women at the time. Right. So there are a lot of, um, feminist call centers and like women's only defense classes, right. Which mm-hmm. were definitely like a, a beacon for a lot of women in the late eighties and early nineties. And so, um, I don't know. I think that the films are, can certain films have, um, made subtle, critiques or, or make right. commentary on, on real life violence. So it's a double-edged sword in a lot of different ways. Naila, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate of it. Of course, Chance. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. I've been dying to be on your podcast for a really long time. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Thank you. And I really, really thank you for having me. I just feel so honored to talk about something that's kind of, you know, lighthearted, but also very important to me at the same time, you know? Cheers. Well, thanks yeah. a lot. Thank you so much. Sincerest thanks to Naila. Please keep up with her work and specifically read this essay at TheRinger.com. And now, with film opinions so dangerous, Dr. Loomis would stop at nothing to confine them away from the world. It's Andy Crumb. Well, today we have a returning guest to Be Real. He was kind enough to join us in January when we 
talked about all kinds of fun stuff like Nick Cage teaching us the hokey pokey and teaching us the alphabet. We basically went to kindergarten with Andy Crump in January <laughs> with Nicolas Cage. But now uh, he's a writer. Uh, he's, he writes regularly for Pace and The Hollywood Reporter. And Andy Crump joins us again. Hello, sir. Hello, Chance. Thanks for having me back. I'm happy to be here. Oh, man, it's such a pleasure. Um, so we are going to talk about uh, Halloween 1978, Halloween 2018, uh, the state of horror movies today, what, quote unquote, elevated horror uh, means. Um, and we're going to bounce off this piece that you wrote for Hollywood Reporter in late September. Uh, I'm going to try my best to synopsize it, but jump in if you feel like I'm misrepresenting. With Halloween, the original turning 40, the new David Gordon Green movie coming out, uh, there's been uh, all kinds of praise kind of cementing Halloween in the canon or just recognizing that it's already a hugely important part of the canon. Um, At the same time, we're going through this spate of um, busy, moody, sophisticated horror films like Hereditary um, that people are are, are praising a lot. Um, And you pose the question, so what would people think of a movie as spare and just frightening as Halloween if it came out in 2018? Uh, in the piece you really measured, I think, or, or me- measured to a point, you posed the question, but you know, you don't rush in and answer it. Maybe I could get you to be a little more speculative here. Um, so what do you think? What would 2018 critics say or not say about Halloween if it came out now? I, I think... Well, like you, like you're just sort of saying, it's it's kind of hard to say to to really answer that question. We'll never, right. we'll never know. I mean, the the one thing I would maybe the the place I would really start with, honestly, to answer that is is with Halloween 2018, which is, you know, receiving quite a bit of praise. Um, I believe it premiered at Toronto this year, and the positive notices really kind of took me by surprise. Um, most of that has to do with the fact that why in the world would I expect a new (laughs) Halloween movie to be any good? Uh Um, but part of that's also that the, the horror movies that play to critics taste these days are, you know, are so are much more overtly, uh, socially conscious and, in some ways, in, you know, some movies, obviously, I think that works. I've written a lot about Get Out since it came out uh, last year. Um, some movies, I don't think it works. Um, and then th- then you have also there's a there's a there's a taste for really, like you said, sophisticated, refined, very uh, intentionally arty mm-hmm. horror movies. And that just bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um on a pretty fundamental level. But I think between those two things, I, I just didn't expect there to really be a lot of, a lot of love for, you know, just a, a pretty standard, um, stripped down back to basic slasher. And yet people really seem to like this. So maybe, maybe, you know, maybe the original Halloween would stand a chance. And maybe that's just because the original Halloween, uh, is exactly that. It's original. It's it's one of a kind. There there aren't a whole lot of horror movies that you know that followed in the the wake of the like the early 80s slasher boom that come close to functioning the way that it does or doing the things that it does. 
Um, and maybe, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the answer. When you, you make a movie like that, um, then people will, will embrace it. So all you have to do is make an all time great movie. Simple. Yeah, enough. that's, that's, that's it. Just really, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like that's not much to ask for. Right. But I don't know. But people seem to struggle. Um, so you also liked the new, uh, the new David Gordon Green Halloween movie, which, if if people don't know, um, essentially erases the what uh, seven sequels and of course the two Rob Zombie movies. Um, my, my numbers might be off there, but what do you think of that new movie? Uh, I think the new Halloween is is just superb. I think it's a really uh, a really well done piece of work. I think what this movie does, and and it's really smart, is it doesn't try to bend itself in, you know, in tie itself in knots or bend itself backwards to fit within the rest of like the Halloween, you know, the rest of the Halloween saga, mm-hmm. the rest of the Halloween chronicle of Michael Myers. It it just says these movies don't exist, and mm-hmm. and more than that, it it every time a character uh, tries to tries to examine, you know. Michael Myers tries to pull some, uh, you know, psychology or psychiatry or armchair psychology on Michael Myers. Someone else is there to just sort of say, no, that's that's stupid. You're thinking too much about this. He's pure evil. And that's all that there is to it. Um, and I think that's great. I feel like that's maybe the best way to approach slashers in general. And it's certainly the most appropriate way to deal with Michael Myers, because that's what makes him scary. So let me jump to a, a movie that uh, when it came out in April, I felt like you on my Twitter feed, at least were one of the, um, the true voices of dissent uh, of pe- among people who, who liked hereditary. Uh, and I know, again, don't let me mischaracterize what you wrote, but you, <laughs> you kind of accused it of being a, I mean, a lot of people pointed out like, Oh, very dramatic kitchen table drama elements in here. You sort of accused it of like making a full, kind of unearned genre pivot at the end. Um, how does your sort of beef with hereditary fit into um, the theory you have about um, people's sort of perhaps uh, misguided or overzealous taste for elevated horror? I, I see the, the thing, if I'm in fighting mode and uh-huh. honestly, as soon as hereditary comes up, like fight fighting mode like commences i start you know charging up sure but if i'm if i'm in fighting mode i i will say that hereditary is really a horror movie for people who don't respect or care for horror that much which i like is demonstrably not true because a lot of the people i know who like it are very very uh, horror literate and Mm -hmm. in many niches are more educated than i am so that's not really true what like my the the fighting side of me uh, sure what, what, what that wants to say but the problem that i have with this movie is with with that movie in particular is that yeah like it, it's ari aster didn't want to make a horror movie he wanted to make a family drama and it's it's like he took this and turned it into a horror movie and and sort of weaves these horror elements throughout um after the, it almost feels like an afterthought mm. there's something really bad going on and it's not like he hides it right and at the same time he kind of doesn't he, he wants you to look the other way from it mm-hmm. so you have so you have this movie that's kind of in con- in conflict with itself because he, he like the horror elements just come second to all of 
the family drama stuff. So it's great once they act, once it actually acts like a horror movie and once it actually, you know, gets away from its obvious influences and kind of just lets itself be scary, which is maybe like the last 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. But the rest of the time, I think it's, it, it feels like it is too sophisticated a movie to just indulge in the pleasures that you get from watching horror, like the entire purpose of horror in the first place. You mean it like just, it believes itself to be too sophisticated for that? I, th- I think it's like, well, I, you know, I think really this is the kind of movie that pe- people would say, and people have said this about the new Halloween, and this is the kind of line that drives me nuts. It's not a great horror movie. It's just a great movie, which to me is just ban- banana town. Because <laughs> like, like horror movies are great movies. And they don't need to, they don't need to like, it, it's almost like this movie is cold, but too bashful to ask for a Coke. Like it doesn't need to, you don't need to be like, a sh- like abashed by your own horror elements. You don't need to be ashamed of that or you don't need to hide them. So more generally, Andy, and kind of tying this back to your piece, you feel like at the same time as people saying, oh, the golden age of uh, smart horror movies, that they're kind of that it's a really backhanded compliment to g- decades of good horror movies. Yes. Cause, okay. because you know, the, the, the look, I like a good psychological horror movie that, that has nothing to do with body count or gore or anything like that. But like the, the thing is there are lots of good horror movies that, that, that are really like they really go for like go for those things go for the body count go for the blood they don't care about disguising themselves for what passes in in critical circles uh as sophisticated like your next is an extremely sophisticated movie and there's so much blood in it mm-hmm. um the th- you like just don't don't try to deny what the movie is i see a lot of people making genre movies the uh, of late i feel like where the the purpose is to is to make it more than what it is and right. i think if you're going to do that just don't make that movie in the first place because genre doesn't need to be more so let's talk about where carpenter fits into this um because these days and for a while for a long time uh he's been super revered as a genre auteur and a and a horror auteur um but how to come back to that word sophisticated are John Carpenter's horror films in your eyes? The best John Carpenter horror movies are they're sophisticated. It doesn't really matter. Like, like they live as it's a sophisticated movie. Mm-hmm. Like the fog is a sophisticated movie. The thing is one of the greatest one of, I think one of the best American movies of all time. It's an incredibly sophisticated film and it's, it's, it comes down to just the way that he considers every element in, in the film and invites us to play detective as we kind of pour through the, like the mystery and the uncertainty that the central monster of that movie uh, injects into the story. I I think I'm not going to, you know, stand up for every movie that, He's made because God knows he's made some There's some stinkers, some real garbage like, oh, God, what was the, uh, the ward is, I think, the last movie that I remember him mm. making. And it's it's not good. But 
I I think when he's when he's at his best, his movies uh, his movies function with again that that sort of either you know dread inducing or or just straight up cruel bent. Uh, I I think and I I think the modern like the the, the green film really gets back to that too. Mm. Carpenter movies. Uh, God, especially the thing, especially Halloween. I, I was a little lukewarm on the fog, I have to say, uh, having watched it for the first time just this week. But not short on craft by any means. Very heavy on brilliant craft. Um, oh yeah. But maybe they fair to say that maybe he didn't share those same concerns about what was cool and tasteful. I don't think he cares at all. I mean, just what what. Uh... What what is he saying? Like he keeps on talk. Like he's in the news about just uh, talking about getting back into into you know making oh, movies. Yeah. I, I I forgot something, and it's just like like he's just <laughs> he's like I'll do it if there's money. <laughs> yeah, like I'll do it if there's money, and if you can get me off of the couch, like get me to stop playing video games. <laughs> I don't know. Like he he's he doesn't he doesn't care, but but not in the sense that he doesn't care about his work because he he does. I think you I don't think you make Halloween by not caring. I don't think you make the thing by not caring. He just doesn't I don't think he cares about I don't think he cares about, you know, uh, about optics or what people think of him or what, you know, nece- not even necessarily what people think of his movies. I think he just wants to make his movies, um, you know, the way that he makes them. And I I super respect that. I mean, in some cases, I kind of think that his movies are 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 maybe attributed too much to him. I think Halloween in a lot of ways is really, uh, it's a John Carpenter movie. It has his fingerprints all over it, but I also think that there are a lot of elements in there that have nothing to do with Carpenter or that are not, you know, direct from Carpenter that, that make it what it is. Um, what are those out of curiosity? I think Jamie Lee Curtis is absolutely incredible. I think the way that Dean Cundy, his, his approach to shooting it, Mm-hmm. uh really is is this like the source of that that like visceral you know yeah. what it makes you watch that you don't want to watch is kind of everything to that movie and and something that you feel like you shouldn't be watching and and the fact that you i think it, you it, i think you know voyeurism and being the voyeur is, is a thing throughout horror and slashers and maybe all of and well definitely all of cinema but i think this is this is the like the voyeur movie that makes you feel like you are you are at fault for for being the audience there's so much that we see from a distance um and sometimes it's michael and we're seeing him from you know from laurie's perspective and sometimes we just see we see laurie and it's we're far away and it feels like we are there on the scene and either we're seeing her through michael's eyes or we're there and we're not doing anything to kind of tamp down this this evil that is creeping into the town not that mm-hmm. we necessarily could, he'd probably kill us if we tried, but it, it gives you the feeling of being, uh, you know, having, having guilt. It makes you feel guilty and it makes you feel like you have blood on your hands Yeah. Uh, at the same time, which is pretty, pretty awesome. Um, well, I think we should wrap it up uh, there, Andy. I, I think we, I think we solved the damn thing. Don't you? <laughs> I, I, you know what? I think, uh, I think we picked the, uh, the bones clean on that for sure. And I think everyone now agrees with you about Hereditary. 
Um, and yeah, they better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we heard fighting mode was alluded to, if not gotten to, on this show. So yeah. careful, everyone. Uh, well, I, man, I promise. I promise. I'm a very, very nice and respectable guy. But God, I hate that movie. Anyways, <laughs> well, uh, good to talk to you, man. Good to talk to you too. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, Andy Crump. Noah, let's talk about the fog. Yeah, let's talk about the fog. Well, it's just amazing to me, before we start with the fog, that of these three movies, the one that became like the 15 movie franchise was Halloween Mm. and not any of these later, arguably like more explorable worlds. Yeah, that's true. The Haddonfield is pretty cardboard. So the fog's two years later. Um, the fog. It opens with an Edgar Allan Poe quote: "All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream." And you see that, and then you see this old sailor man on the beach telling ghost stories, doing his best Donald Pleasance, and/or one of the English professors that Chance and I had in college. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I will argue that Hal Holbrook like quickly takes up the Donald Pleasance role in this movie. Oh, definitely. Um, I'm just like talking about so much that people don't understand, but like telling the audience what's going on. Um, so yeah, the old sea captains like, listen, kids, a hundred years ago, um, these these mariners thought they saw uh, saw they thought they saw a campfire on shore. They were trying to get into land, and their boat was like ripped in half by some rocks uh what is it the elizabeth dane is that the name of the boat that's right uh and they all effing died and so that sort of like very simple ghost story is set up for you at the beginning of this but they come back he says that they come back to avenge their oh yeah in the fog sorry yeah in the fog it's not just the (laughs) and that they they leave like gold coins and stuff Right. And don't pick up the gold coins because the fog's coming and then they're they're there. But that's not quite the real story, though. No. There is that sort of sets you up for like what the fog is. Mm-hmm. But that's also like way off from the real lore yeah. of um, what's this place called? Mermaid Lagoon? Antonio Bay. <laughs> Antonio Bay. Northern, we're in Northern California now. Are we ever? So many sharp rocks. From Illinois to NoCal to Antarctica is where Carpenter takes us in these three movies. And then it's the witching hour, the night before the town's centennial. Uh, right. And we are guided by um, Adrian Barbeau, plays this uh, single mother and radio host. Stevie Wayne. Named Stevie Wayne. Um, and she's just like playing her, you know, romantic kind of big band music. Uh, and making like sexy, smoky voice. She's got a great voice. Hey, everybody out there in Antonio Bay. Yeah. Um, give us a call. I see why John, Thinking of you. I see why John Carpenter wanted to, to marry Adrienne Barbeau. She's got a great smoky voice. Um, it's really upsetting, though, that he broke up with... Uh, Deborah Hill. Debbie. Deborah Hill. But who also produced this movie? Yeah, I haven't gotten that far in the podcast yet. I'm I'm interested to see how their personal relationship plays out. Yeah, um, and so between the hours of of midnight and one, the night before the hundredth birthday, every mechanical object, and I guess quite a few non-mechanical objects, basically go haywire. Cars are going up and down on their jacks, clocks are exploding, 
light bulbs are swinging around, mirrors are creaking and falling, all your standard kind of, you know, superstitious, scary stuff. Uh, windows are shattering seemingly at random. Um, and then we meet a few people. Yeah, we meet Stevie Wayne. Um, we meet some drunkards on a boat. We meet Nick and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's um, Elizabeth. Hitchhiker 1. Yeah, Hitchhiker <laughs> 1, basically, for all the attention that's paid to the character. Um, and they're going for a ride and the car windows explode. And then they're like, yeah, we should hook up because of that or something. Um but yeah, we take this tour of the town and, Jan- and Janet Lee's in this movie and she's trying to plan the centennial the next day. Um, oh yeah, and then Hal Holbrook is the Father Malone uh, over in this very kind of uh, cask of Amontillado looking church. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and even the stones and mortar are even coming out of the walls. So it's like, you know, the Poe is right there for you. Let me ask... Did you have trouble deciding like whether this story was more Cask of Amontillado or Our Town? Uh, no, I mean, but you're right. <laughs> it's there's something about it that's so like Thornton Wilder of like, oh, my husband went out fishing and he never came back, <laughs> but I'm still gonna give the speech for the centennial of this town of twenty people <laughs> who would totally understand if I had to reschedule. Yeah, eighty percent of them are at the bar and not coming anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> John Carpenter's The Fog. This is K.A.B. Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. At first I was like, yeah, it's got that like Stephen King small town vibe, but like it's it's like quainter than that. It's like very like pastoral in some ways, which again lets Carpenter shine when he gets to use space. At one point, Adrian Barbo takes this very long walk to the radio station down like the the lighthouse ramp while listening to promos, and it's just like such a very patient like beautiful but haunting like he when he finds a staircase or a block or um or a weird lighthouse ramp he really savors it which appeals to the right. cinephile in me the rest of the movie no, 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 i don't know well it's the interesting thing about this because i think it suffers from the opposite problem of halloween where halloween's like we have to build tension we have to build tension and then we'll get to this climactic thing yeah this one i think you know, probably owes a huge debt of gratitude to films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where you have these, like, sort of magical realist things happening, mixed in with that horror stuff in there. So, like, the things are building. It's not so much you're waiting for the thing to happen. Like, the thing happens during the opening title sequence. Mm -hmm. The rest of this, like, the fallout of the thing happening and the thing coming back. Yeah. But what I think happens is, like after a while, how high a gear can you put like a guy knocking on a door as like your thing? Like, how do you right. climax with that? One of the great things about Michael Myers is that he, there was no rule that said he had to knock. Right. I just love how polite the fog is. Right. Um, Hello, we are pirates. We have come to murder you, but we won't unless you let us in. Right. It's, it's like a vampire. They have to be invited in. But like, but the movie never makes those rules very clear. No. At all. So yeah, it's like 
of an hour. And eventually, in. the pirates are just like, "Fuck it." Right, right. Then it doesn't matter. It's like, right. well, why did you not? We're over being polite with you. We're gonna murder you whether you want it or not. Yeah. We didn't talk about the score of Halloween. Maybe we didn't have to. Oh, yeah. Enough people have talked about how incredible it is. And written by John Carpenter, if you didn't know that. Of course. He scored. Who's also like a pretty good musician. Yeah. In addition to being an okay director. (laughs) Um, He scored this movie as well. He scored most of his movies. Notably, Not the Thing, which we're going to talk about. Um, But the score for this movie is very similar to the Halloween theme. (laughs) Certainly. Yeah. and I think that like a lot of the sort of like, it's a sleepy town and there's a force and it's kind of slowly moving this way. And we're, we've got a synth score one more time with some piano, like tinkling over the top. Um, I don't know, like having just watched Halloween, there's a lot of ideas being recycled. At the same time though, I feel that the big movie that this card had to play that it like laid down all at once is the fact and spoiler for the fog. Sure. That these people what needed to form a leper colony nearby because they were afflicted with leprosy. And that's why these sort of like bandaged hands and these mangled appendages when they knock on the door, also weird. But instead of exploring that through like scary, uh, corporeal horror, um, Hal Holbrook just like sits down Janet Lee and was like, you shouldn't have the commemoration. It says here that we killed everyone in the leper colony. Like it just explains it all at once, which like right. I-, I thought that could have been drawn out and teased like in a really interesting way. Yeah. And it's certainly watching Hal Holbrook read for a really long time is not super interesting. He's got that thing. He has the Donald Pleasance thing where like, He's on a completely different wavelength from all the other people. And maybe that's supposed to be like a little funny because everybody else is kind of just like a fuddy-duddy townie. And then you have this one like vaguely, you know, Anglo old man who's like, and the true secret to all of life is this. Um, Yeah. But it's again, it's just a dynamic that doesn't work well. And when the townspeople talk, it's not good. Well, it hasn't established the town enough itself to really have that our townness to it because that's ultimately what it is it's a it's a movie about the the one big lie that the town told itself so it could exist right and the lie was that we are allowed to take these lepers money yeah because they're lepers i think you have to build that out with like an authority figure and a cover-up and a sense of right. ill-gotten civic pride and that's none of that is very there no It tries to, because the thing happens in the opening credits, which it has to, or like the movie would be ungodly long. But what you lose out on is seeing what normal looks like. Right. You know, like it's not quite the the witches of uh, Eastwick where you like see the town and you like get what the town is before Jack Nicholson comes to town. Sure, sure. And yeah, and then also I don't think it sticks the landing. It's like both open-ended and totally closed in like right. in terms of if the fog's coming back. Well, yeah, because at this, a certain point, are we in the middle of the movie? Is it over? At a certain point, they're like, it's six people. They only want six, 
And then they're like, we're okay. they're, you know, they're callously counting up like, okay, and the dead grandma's five, so we should be right. just about good. <laughs> and then Hal Holbrook tries to sacrifice himself. And in that sort of like way that Donald Pleasance talks to or about Michael, he just starts referring to Blake, the captain of the ship. And he's like, why did you not take me, Blake? What about six? And then like, obviously, Blake comes back for him. <laughs> right. It's not shocking, though. No. This movie kind of bugged me because I really like Halloween and I'll share my feelings on the thing in a little bit. Um, but this one just, it felt like like it was trying to be kind of nice and again, an American and pastoral. It knocks on the door and it's just like, hello, may we scare you now? <laughs> yeah. Are you ready? It's like, yeah, but you can, but it's not that scary. Also, I saw you coming. I saw the fog. <laughs> right. The fog's not that thick. I just think so much of this movie... Is Adrian Barbeau going like, uh, what's her? Yeah, what's her fucking son? Get out of there! Get out of there! And it's like, this is probably why nobody listens to your fucking radio station, (laughs) is because you use it for your personal issues. You're not using it the way a radio station is supposed to be used. You're breaking character. I don't know. She uses, uh, she does a lot of reporting on the, the, Easterly or westerly position of the fog. <laughs> yeah. Well, and she also says good, like at the beginning, she's like, just to let you guys know, those four guys out in that boat are still very much dead. <laughs> and that was another crazy night in Antonio <laughs> Bay. <laughs> we just lost 25% of our citizens. Yeah, so there's just a lot of things left on the table here, like for all the praise that, um, Halloween gets for its first-person POV. Why not do a first-person POV within the fog? It's about one of the only ways you can really make fog scary is not being able to see. Um, yeah, we're never really in the fog. It's we're just like in a town, like in a, a, a set that doesn't have fog, and then like three smoke machines turn on, and then now we can't see the set anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't think this is a bad movie. Um, I know that people kind of regard it as maybe like the high middle of Carpenter's filmography. But in between watching what people consider to be the very top, which is Halloween and The Thing, this was a disappointment. So I'm going to give it a bad, bad. I think this one was kind of a bad good. Okay. I thought this one was like a lot more fun than Halloween, but of course, like it didn't start, you know, the same. It didn't make the same splash. The fog not the same. Universe. Yeah, never just, condensed into a true splash. <laughs> right. It's now a drizzle. Right. That's the sequel. So we'll wrap up here today with uh, the thing from 1982 which is a remake of a 1951 film that was technically called The Thing from Another World, but is often referred to as The Thing, black and white, kind of early sci-fi horror film. Which was playing on the television in Halloween. Is that true? Yeah, when they're, they're like home that night, the movie that they're watching is That's like the naming thing. a character in your next movie, Nick Castle. What a, what a wonderful, incestuous little universe of John Carpenter films. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. 
but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! So, what happens in this movie is that we open with what I think is such a fascinating opening on just... The well, that horrible shot of the little spaceship flying past oh. Earth. <laughs> no, sorry. That, I'm talking about the thing after the opening, which oh. is uh, a completely... I was talking about the prologue. No, the prologue's not great. <laughs> I'm very forgettable because I clearly forgot about it. Um, Are you talking about the, like the, the snow mountain and the little helicopter? The dog just running across the yeah. tundra and this helicopter chasing the dog. And you're like, what in God's name is going on? And they're trying to shoot the dog, and it's super sad. It's, yes, it's a husky, um, and it's just running for its life. And these two Norwegians, these bearded... They're hell-bent on killing <laughs> throwing grenades at it. Yeah. Um, but it's like it's it's so silent and so patient, and Marconi did the score for this one. And you kind of hear it, and it's a lot like Carpenter in the beginning, but it's a little more percussive. Um, right. It's an interesting score. I'll talk more about it later. What well, has this sort of like, it, it's like the, the sounds bouncing off the mountains or something. Yeah. Cause we're on Antarctica here mm-hmm. and it's like, you can feel how like vast, but also how closed in you are with the score. I felt like that's true. That's a really good point. Um, and I feel like this is where Carpenter sort of learned to use the wide shot. I think the, the opening shot, like where you, you're like, Oh, what a beautiful place. And then you see this helicopter slowly get bigger. Yeah. It's like a, such an interesting entry point into this movie. For sure. Um, especially because it, what it becomes is like a, a terrifying igloo drama. You're right. <laughs> you're stuck. Um, so this dog is on the run, and you have no idea what's going on. Um, and eventually, the dog reaches an American encampment of of researchers, and then just like some of the the hired help around the camp. Um, and Kurt Russell is a their helicopter pilot. And the Norwegians are trying to kill this dog into the camp. They're throwing flash grenades and they set the thing down. And all the guys are like, what are you guys trying to do to this dog? And they they shoot one of them in the leg and they're yelling in Norwegian. Um, By the way, I've heard that if you speak Norwegian, the movie is ruined for you at the beginning because he yells (laughs) at you what it was (laughs) and what the dog is. Um, But... uh, because we the the Norwegian shoots one of the men in the leg, the the captain of of the group is just like, okay, I can't have this, and you know puts a puts a revolver bullet through his head, and they're like, wow, I wonder what what the hell that was about, and the helicopter blows up, so they have no idea what they have though. Critically, is the dog, and so then you just get a sense of like what's going on around there, and there's like what maybe twelve people. And a lot of character actors you recognize, most notably like Wilford Brimley and Keith David. Um, it's weird to see uh, Wilford Brimley without his mustache, though. Right. Um, I was going to say a young Wilford Brimley, but that's an oxymoron. Um, no, that guy's only been 60 years old. <laughs> right. He's still 30 years away from hawking diabetes medicine, but he's old as hell. Did you see, way. did you recognize... Uh, Vance Norris, played by Charles Hallahan, what he's from. Charles Hallahan. No, what's he in? He is the leader of the team in the Volcano City uh. in Dante's <laughs> Peak. He's Paul, and he's the guy who doesn't make it in the truck over the over the bridge. That's They're a- like, no, Paul! Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Thank you, NASA. Thank you, NASA. 
anyway, back to this. Your fluency with Dante's Peak is upsetting. Um, so yeah, they're they're all just around. They're doing their thing. Um, they go. They decide they've got to go investigate what was going on at the Norwegian camp. And and Russell just cuts an incredible figure, just like he did during every movie that came out in this era. Kurt Russell as ne'er-do-well helicopter pilot McReady. <laughs> Mac or McReady. Um, and he's just got these goggles and he's got this giant beard and you see from the beginning he's got a real taste for Jim Beam. And hat. And yeah, the whole time he has like this uh, like Sancho Panza hat just like draped over his like leather jacket. He never puts... Does he put it on? Maybe to fly. Oh, he puts it on only when they're like in... Like when they're in the Norwegian camp and he's like going around with his little gun and he like keeps the hat on nice. for protection. Nice. Just to show the whoever that he's not fucking around. That's right. What had the premise of this movie, we'll get to it, is that this is a, an alien that's uh, landed in Antarctica millions of years ago, was thought out by the Norwegian people, and what this thing does is it genetically and quickly takes on all properties of the the body that it snatches. Well, yeah, it like kind of photocopies itself with you, but then it kills you. And then oh, it is yeah. an exact genetic copy of you, except for the fact that it is looking to kill the next thing. Right. It's looking to procreate. So I know you want to, I hope you'll forgive me if I cut off your point here. I know you want to talk about the similarities to, to Alien, perhaps. And those are many, and they are obvious. But I think what's specific about the thing is that the thing is just a device to create this um, very gory practical effect laden suspense film oh my wherein God. the men cannot trust each other and they have no idea how many people or who is infected or who is who or what is what and so like what the thing is i think i mean i may sound like i'm just doing some lip service to the movie here is fear impossible to detect fear and distrust in your fellow person absolutely like, there's no xenomorph it's not like there it what's is a, what's a xenomorph oh the the alien from alien Oh, the alien, like the the big shrimp. Yeah, like it's, nobody's like, that's the perfect organism because like nobody really sees the thing. Every time you see the thing, what's so terrifying about it is that it has no like personal assemblage to it. It's just like a fucked up version of you and sometimes a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes it uses your rib cage to become a spider, but it's still you. Right. Um, and later in the movie when it's 20 feet tall, there's still a dog head that comes out and there's nothing worse than that. There, there is nothing worse than some of the special effects in this. The special effects are unbelievable. Would you like to call them what you want to call them? Bulbous. These are bulbous effects. This is the practical effect that inspired the digital effects of films like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and, uh... What's the other one? Hugh Jackman, where he like hunts down Van Helsing. Yeah, Van Helsing. Oh, okay. He's like bulbous, Steven Summer, gross. You know, but this is so sick. Like you know, pretty quickly that it's it's not it's going to be like in the same world as the endings shots from like Raiders of the Lost Ark when like the SS guy's face fucking melts. But it's so, it feels like a lot more work than that. What it reminds me of is the, oh, yeah. the fly. I mean, there's, oh, perfect. There's, yeah, it, there's so much of it, and it's so long, and it's you want to say, 
I found myself kind of torn in this movie. One of the one of the great moments of practical horror effects is when the doctor is giving a defibrillator to one of the guys oh and his God. chest suddenly opens during one of the pushes. It's like the shot in Christmas Vacation when the turkey like explodes, except he goes into it and the turkey's still alive and it eats him right. and copies him on the spot. And then like his head crawls away. Uh, that's a different or the body's guy. head. No, the body's head. Oh, the body's away. head crawls away. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's unbelievable. It's sort of Tim Burtony. It's almost like kind of like Beetlejuice in its sort of like these tails, these claymation tails that like come off stuff and just like they slither away. And I hear what you're saying, and yet it's so much more committed than that. You may say oh, that in 2018 that it looks campy. But I don't think that it is trying to be campy. It is trying to be the grossest, most earnestly gross thing you have ever seen. And in some ways, it still very much is. I don't think I've ever seen something more disgusting from the past 35 years. And that is quite an achievement. (laughs) Like, (laughs) one of the great things about this movie... This is like a good one to like. This is a good like friend couch movie, as opposed to ho- oh, as opposed to Halloween. This movie is very liable to elicit a lot of like clapping and like what the fuck is like the noise <laughs> that you make over and over when you watch this. Certainly, yeah. Like when it when it first like flips the dog inside out, and that and happens like so fast. You know, you think it's about but to once be this you very realize. T- good. Once you realize that the, the rules by which the special effects a la the alien play by, yeah. it's it's horrifying. Because <laughs> the sky is really the limit, or like there's oh, yeah. no there's no basement to this this house of horrors. Because in the on the one hand, it has it has a few moments of Michael Myers' patience where Carpenter is just kind of directing the husky. And it's like the husky is watching and the husky is around and you're again, it's quiet and the husky goes to visit someone and there's a shadow on the wall and he's like, Hey boy. And then the scene just ends. It's like, Oh yes, this is very Halloween esque. And then within four minutes, the dog is exploding and murdering the other dogs. And you're like, Oh my God. Um, Right. Yeah. The movie abandons that pretty quickly to, I think pretty great effect. I really like how this movie like uses those practical special effects. I know you're a big like love them practical. I I love them too. Yeah. I think it's one of the major crimes of Hollywood now that like the technology is not improved with practical stuff, and it's still like I just can't buy digital the way I can even in this disgusting like clearly you know Nickelodeon slime time live kind of <laughs> key. I think Keith David's also pretty great in this movie. I know that it's it's such a Kurt Russell vehicle, but there's something interesting about him being this like very sturdy, muscular man. His name is Childs. That like when he gets put in charge, like Childs take care of this. It's almost like you're asking a child to do it, and it's like why wouldn't you have a, an adult do this difficult thing? So then at the end, when like he's there, I don't know. There's this certain condescension that. Maybe plays on race, maybe plays on alien stuff. Who's to say? But it's interesting. I think what you're speaking to goes hand in hand with an, with another thing that I love about the movie, which is that it it messes with your biases. I mean, we could talk about all the practical effects, but at the end of the day, this is a thriller kind of about who's infected and who's not, right? Right. Um, and I've seen this movie twice before. Um, sure. I'd never seen it before. 
So I know what the dog is. And every time the movie opens, you're like, oh, don't shoot the dog. Like on the third yeah. viewing, like you're still like, don't shoot the dog. And you can't empathize with the Norwegians who have been crazed beyond like your empathy mechanism. And instead you're siding with this, this animal that's like trying to procreate its villainous, you know, slime everywhere. Um, but that speaks to what it's trying to get you to do throughout. You keep, if you watch closely enough, some of the like arguments that like fly by between the people of like, you go do this and I'll go do this and I'll pair off with this person. The movie like forces you to side with Kurt Russell a lot when maybe you shouldn't be. And there's like a distrust of Childs. And there's a point where he's just like, Childs, maybe we should have somebody do that who's not so, um, you know, doesn't have such a temper. And like Childs hasn't displayed a temper, but what Kurt Russell does pretty soon is uh, kill a guy who wasn't infected at all. Well, that's the, if you hold this movie up to a certain light, there are these double standards that exist for how upset characters are allowed to get. I mean, I think this exists in all of Carpenter's movies. You know, it's either a young girl, you know, or a single mom or something like this, where these like women who have made these choices or men who have made these choices, like are not treated as equals. Right. And you're wondering, like, how how complicit were these people in these sort of so-called choices that they have made? Yeah, none of Carpenter's movies are very overtly political, but the but the underlying fear is a like our fears and poisons that America is founded on. Like, are we're not listening to this person? Um, we're not paying attention to this person. You know who we believe in uh, is is Kurt Russell because he's Mac. He's a yeah. cowboy. He's a helicopter pilot. Um, but but that makes you, and the, the one scene, Keith David says it, it's like, so that makes you a murderer, huh? And Kurt Russell doesn't really have anything to say back to that. No, he certainly doesn't. Well, I think it's an interesting, too, using the the alien or whatever, like, as this idea of influence. Because not only are people, like, either getting this thing that, like, totally changes who they are, even though they resemble the same... Pr- I mean, you could you could make that argument about one's politics, you know, one's sports affiliations, like whatever, like once you get this thing into you, you appear to be the same person, but you are wholly changed because of this belief. It's about belief and how that is spread. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so, I think if anything, it's, if it is, if there is a political movie or if the three, I think this is the most political because it, it worries about ideas getting out of containment. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think secretly that this is the smartest movie of the three and the most watchable and the best the best job of managing a lot. Uh, so I'm going to yeah. give it a, a clear good good. I've seen it three times and would happily watch this gross-ass movie again. Yeah, I think it's definitely a good good for me too and my favorite of the three by far. Nice. It's just even just years later from Halloween um, and the fog, it just feels so much more competent in how it makes a movie. Like, sure, I think it owes a huge debt of gratitude to Alien. Yeah. You know, I mean, the idea of finding this signal out in the wilderness or the in a deserted place and like All these... making weird contact and then something gets released into your own team. Right. I mean, that's it's an alien movie, literally. For sure. So, but that being said, it does have that. It's, it is on Earth. It does have Antarctica. And it does have some of the most disgusting and impressive special effects I've ever seen. Cheers. 
And folks, you can find all of our shows, including a scant few reviews of horror movies like It, and I really can't think of anything else we've reviewed. Get Out, we did that. Yeah, I don't, that's not really a horror movie. For, for me, at Shutter least. Island. We've never done Shutter Island. That's just been an argument uh, in our lives. Uh, Silence of the Lambs. We've never done either. We did Red Dragon. But you talk about it enough. I it's talk almost about like it we so do it. much. Oh, terrible. We watched Red Dragon, though. Yeah, yeah. I talk about Silence of the Lambs enough. <laughs> um, okay. You talking about Silence of the Lambs is like Anthony Hopkins' appearances in most major motion pictures. <laughs> it's far too often. So yeah, berealpodcast.com for all our shows and please give us a follow on uh, Twitter or Instagram. You can find us at berealpodcast. Rate the show on iTunes and uh, thanks for being you. Thanks for hanging out and happy Halloween. No one emerges triumphantly from it when the scum begins to circle the drain. Everybody loves a winner.